Primo Maggio, Primo Maggio, benvenuto nel unico podcast de cui avrei mai bisogno. Mayday, Mayday. It is May the 1st, 2020, and we're coming to you from beautiful Bayside, Melbourne, Australia, at the new, spanky new, very expensive, Shure MV451 microphone. Can you hear the difference? I can. And my very nice Shure headphones to accompany it. We're expanding here. We're spending the big dollars to bring you this podcast for free. And I apologize to some of you, to some of you, some of you people, that last week's podcast was pretty pretty long. It pushed the button at just over an hour and two minutes. Now, a lot of people said, oh, it was great. They were listening to me on their walks. Um, thank you, Carol Cirque, uh, for taking a nice long walk instead of being lazy. And uh, they liked it. But some people have also said, and actually someone, the Badgers, who we ran into on the way home from our walk the other morning, that they felt it was a bit long-winded. A bit long-winded. But but there's always a but they love the fact that I'd gone into the social distancing walking protocol because um Keith is a pretty peace loving centered greeny ecological environmental kind of warrior eco warrior but he wanted the bash the living daylights out of some people on his walk and he admitted it so I'm glad that I bring out that that revenge molecule in people because that, that is my raison d'etre. If I can get peaceful people to just get upset, then I've uh, accomplished something. And if I can get those of you that are perennially angry and dark, somewhat modulated and calm and peaceful, then there too have I succeeded. Like I'm progressing on my Italian, as you can tell. Now, today, we are going to bring this in at around 40 minutes, so you can time your walk or your workout or uh, whatever it is you're, you're doing accordingly. And uh, we're going to start off with a 63-year run in cinema with the most important documentary of all time, the Up series. Some of you may have seen the Up series. It's huge in the UK and quite big here, and it was released theatrically for the first time just a few months ago in the the U.S., and those of you that have followed my um, amazement of it on social media, I got to meet one of the participants, Tony Walker, when I was in London at Christmas time, and that was a real bucket list thing. They say you should never meet your heroes, but uh, this was one that exceeded expectations. Uh, So we'll be covering that. We'll be talking about really how I got here to Australia, which started in second grade, a, a library trip in second grade with Miss Bernice Scantleberry at Lincoln Elementary School in Sioux City, which I just found out has been closed, closed since 2016. Nobody called me. I don't know what they did with my desk. And we'll uh, cover a couple of other more social and, li- and light aspects. We're going to go light today. We went a bit dark last week and long, dark and long. And today we're going to go light and short. But uh, stay alert, because you never know when we might just flip that switch and go deep. So, 
For those of you that haven't seen the Up series, the Up series started in 1964 in London. Uh, ITV originally created the really the first documentary uh, reality show. And uh, Michael Apted, who uh, worked for Granada TV and is now, I don't know, he's probably pushing about 85 years old, uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Gorillas in the Mist, um, dozens and dozens of epic films, is the voice and the director now of this reality series, which originally took a couple of dozen kids around England, and this was in 1964, and the whole idea was they wanted a glimpse of England in the year 2000. Who's going to be the union leader, the business executive of the year 2000? Anyway, uh, it was mostly boys. They didn't have too many girls, which is, you look back on it, people go, oh, that was a bit uneven, but this was 1964, and women never really were preordained to be business leaders or prime ministers and things like that back in 1964 mentality, and nor did they ever expect to do a second series. It was just called 7-Up, and they had all these kids. They, they originally had 14 kids, and some of them were from really wealthy families, you know, the private school, quite well-spoken, English plum accent that you might find the queen somewhat articulating. And then some of them were from the poorer areas in the West End and uh, a young kid from outside of Liverpool. And these kids, they interviewed them all and just asked them about life and this and that. And of course, they're seven. So how much about life do they know? Well, the kids from the posh private schools, they knew they knew where they were going to go to university by the time they were seven. It had all been laid out for them. I'm going to Trinity College in Cambridge. And um, some of the other kids, two of them were from orphanages, one of which Paul, who now lives here in Melbourne. And they just, they just wanted to be out of the orphanage. They just wanted to be with families. They you know, wanted normal lives. So you kind of got a picture of that. But seven years later, they came back and did it again and called it 14 Up. Duh. And then 21 up and 28. Anyway, 63 up aired this last year. So they have been following these kids since they were seven and they are now 63. Well, I'm 66 and a half plus. And I first became acquainted with this series when I was about 16. So my, my parents took me down to Omaha, Nebraska. Now, as you know, I grew up in Sioux City, Iowa. Omaha's about 90 minutes south. It was the big smoke. It had a skyscraper, the Mutual of Omaha building. Mutual of Omaha presents. And it had, you know, markets and top jewelry stores and clothing stores. And my mom really liked that thing. And my dad would drag her along and she'd go shopping and we'd have a nice meal and stuff like that. But lo and behold, on this trip to Omaha, and, and my brother was, I think, out in California at this time, or finishing university, whatever. He was 21. No, I was 23. Um, and I was 16. We went to an art cinema. Now, my dad couldn't care less much about cinema. My mother, as you know, is a film freak and loves cinema. But we didn't have art cinemas in, in Sioux City. We didn't even have porn cinemas in Sioux City, except Lower 4th Street, which we'll get into later. Well, actually, we won't get into it, you know, actually, but, you know, 
there's a story there that needs to be told. And uh, so we're in the car, you know, two-hour drive down to Omaha, a little bit exciting. And lo and behold, we go into this art cinema, and it's playing a film called 14 Up. I have no idea how my parents even found out about this film. It wouldn't even have been in the Sioux City Papers. It was like one of these serendipitously bizarre, you know, holy grail journeys. And I'd never seen a documentary before either. And I was quite fascinated with England because I'd had a trip to England with my high school, with Mr. Asmussen, but I uh, was quite fascinated with it. And so here's this film called 14 Up, which has these seven-year-old kids and then revisiting them when they're 14, and they're all talking about how their lives have progressed. And I was only a couple years older, and I just uh, I felt like I'd met a whole bunch of new friends, kids that I totally related with on the other side of the world. And I had pen pals at that time. I would write a physical letter with a pen. That's what they called it a pen pal, for those of you that are millennials. And on letters and in envelopes with stamps and mailing it across the world. And then sometimes somebody would reply. And I actually had one kid in Germany and one kid in England that used to send letters back and forth. I thought it was quite cool. And of course, kids today go, oh, that's the same as Facebook or Twitter or something like that. No, it's a little bit different uh, because pen pals didn't have 7,000 other people pile on and go, oh, yeah, he's a dickhead. Let's mess him up because they don't like your opinion. It was more one-to-one. And every seven years, Michael Apted would come back and visit these kids. Now, they had never planned to do a second one, never planned to do a third one, and then it just became self-perpetuating. And over the years, some of the kids dropped out. Uh, One of the kids, the really posh uh, English kids, um, Charles, dropped out. And Charles even sued Michael Apted to have his name taken off it and pictures taken off it for some reason that's still inexplicable 50 years later. And Charles is actually a documentary maker. He did Touching the Void, one of the most amazing films, but he never appeared after 21 Up. And occasionally some people would come in and, and, and drop out um, personal things going on. But with the with the girls, when the time they were 14 and 20, 21, um, you could see a lot of angst going on. Uh, if they weren't married at 21, you know, you're, you're talking um, the 70s back then, there was a certain stigma uh, the kids from the orphanages had gotten out. They'd grown up. They were having families of their own. One of them, Paul, uh, had moved to Melbourne. One of, the other one from the orphanage, Simon, uh, the only one who was mixed race. He had a black father, um, was working and starting a family. And one of them that fascinated me was the kid from the East End, Tony Walker. Tony. Tony wanted to be a jockey. Because when he was seven years old, all he wanted to do was be a jockey. And then the East End was the, the, the tough end of, of London back then. And now it's changed quite a bit. Uh, every place has changed quite a bit. And fascinated with being a jockey. And at 14, he was you know racing. He'd been a bit of a runner for a bookie. He'd been uh, doing a couple of things that seemed, I wouldn't say dodgy, but on the, on the fringe there. And even Michael Apted, the director, had thought at one point, that uh, Tony might end up in jail. You kind of predict how these kids are going to be. The posh kids are going to go to the university, get top jobs as lawyers and silks and things like that. The girls are just going to be married and be housewives. Um, The kids that were handy were going to be carpenters. You know, you you kind of saw these predictions going on. 
and it's from the old adage, give me the child until he is seven, and I will give you the man. But over the years, life takes its course, and, and Tony became the one that I was most fascinated with. Uh, I didn't grow up in a tough neighborhood by any chance. I grew up in a rather privileged area of Iowa, if there was really privilege, so, so to speak. And I didn't have hard times, and I didn't have to get in too many fights or anything like that. And um, I only got in one fight in school, one one really big fight. It was a, with a fellow named Lou Schuler. Don't know whatever happened to him. I hope he's dead, but uh, no, not really. I have no idea what happened to him. They were from the family at the top of the Valley Drive that um, were Catholic and drank. That's what my mom said anyway. So hence that was a problem. Anyway, I digress. But Tony never won a race. He came second in one of the races, which he kept a photograph of, and that was the closest he came to to winning. And then he gave it up and went into business as a taxi driver. Now, in London, a taxi driver, you got to take this thing called the knowledge. And there's nobody that knows more about London, even the freaking queen, than the taxi drivers there. It is hard to be a taxi driver. Best taxis in the world, as opposed to Melbourne, where, you know, they come straight out of Karachi or Mogadishu. They've got a brother that has a taxi license. They speak no English, and they don't know the difference between the Melbourne Cricket Ground and, um, you know, Caulfield Cemetery. And you get in the taxi, and you go, oh, I want to go to Federation Square. And you go, and uh, just can't deal with that. Can't deal with that. Multiculturalism works great for restaurants, not ta- not taxis. I, in fact, I got to tell you, every time I get into a taxi, not in London, and um, you know, you see a hundred thousand beads hanging from the rearview mirror and all of that, and the turban, and Jesus Christ, I don't know what else. And and then I know I'm I'm in for it. I try not to strike up a conversation, but invariably they do, and they go, "Where are you from?" And I go, oh, "You know, originally the U.S." And they go, "New York." I go, "No, no, Iowa." But somehow it's, you know, in New York, in September 10th, all the Jews left both Twin Towers. There were no Jews in the Twin Towers on 9-11. They all got out, so there were no Jews killed there. They knew what was happening. Well, you know how well that goes. I'm usually out of that taxi with their Koran in, in about, you know, six minutes halfway to my destination. And I kid you not, this has happened to me like a dozen times since 9-11. A dozen times. It's just crazy. This is not an isolated incident. Um, yes, multiculturalism works so well. So Tony became a taxi driver and very successful. And over the years, I was absolutely fascinated with his life. And he got married and get kids and looks like he might have had a bit of an affair one time and all of this is chronicled every seven years so these are like friends these are like my facebook friends or my central high school friends my lincoln school friends my herbert hoover friends some of you that are listening right now um like carol she's on our walk her walk uh she walks once a week just for my show and you know i haven't seen some of you in years except on social media but i would see tony and everybody else every seven years. And now his mortality has started to creep in on me that like a hundred 
of our classmates at Central have died out of 600 plus or whatever. Thank you, Nancy. Nancy Levine, statistician. Um, you know, when Nancy posts, it's usually bad news. Someone else's, someone else's died. She, she posts happy birthday. And then the next day somebody died. So, um, it's kind of like that, uh, um, cursed satanic cat in the rest home that would come by and sit outside your door and, and you'd be dead the next day. There was this cat in this rest home in, uh, Massachusetts that always used to know who was going to die and sit outside the door. And everyone in the in the rust home would know that that person's gone the next day. You should look that up. It's an amazing story. I need that cat. I really wish I had that cat because there's about, you know, there's about a dozen people on my people who need to die list. And I, I would just take that cat and put it right outside their door. You know, Alyssa Milano or Tim Minchin, Bette Midler, um, you know, Rob Reiner. Anyway, that's a future show. That's a future show. But the, the film in its entirety has been edited and, and compiled into 63 Up, where they take the best, most of the 7 Up, and then the best clips from 14, 21, 28, 35, you know, 42, 49, 56, and, and put together. And when it came out several months ago, it aired here on SBS in Melbourne. I'm not a big fan of SBS, but I worship SBS for broadcasting that over several nights. And all these people now are faced with mortality. One passed away, Lynn, the librarian, and she had a tough life. She was from the poorer areas, uh, probably health issues her whole life. She was a librarian. She had a mobile book library for kids, and then that job got shut down for funding. And you, you, the most amazing thing is you pass... 63 years in just a matter of a couple hours. You relive all of this, and it's qu it's quite emotional. It's it's heartbreaking in some ways, and it's uh, exhilarating in others. You share their wins and their losses because you've known these people your whole lives. I've, I've never missed it. I just thank God my mom and dad took me to that cinema. I probably wouldn't have been aware, aware of this. And Michael Apted has such an amazing voice. He's such an amazing filmmaker. And all the participants say, it's like, you know, it's like a poison pill. Every seven years, the phone rings and Michael calls and um, says, uh, you know, like, hello, Paul, it's Michael Apted. He says, yeah, I know who it is. Of course, I know your voice after all these years. And some of them just think, oh, it's not a good time. He's coming at a time where I'm going through a divorce from my uh, daughter's rehab or, you know, I've got cancer, whatever like that. But they all succumb. They almost all succumb to it. They almost feel an obligation to it. Some of them use it as a little bit of self-promotion. Um, one of the well-to-do English people uses it to promote his wife's charity. Uh, and, you know, another fellow that was in a band promotes his band and music and stuff like that, which is fine. But it is almost indescribable. You watch the show... And then you go into the bathroom, when you go into bed, you're shaving in the morning or brushing your teeth, or those of you from New Zealand or, you know, Nebraska who brush your tooth. And you look in the mirror, and that 63 years, you, you're just looking at yourself. I don't care how old you are, and you see the mortality. You see what's happening, that everything that is happening to these people 
is happening to you and everything that's happening to you is happening to these people. And you just see your life go by. And with these kids, and I still call them kids, they're 63 now, rather close to the 65 because the time between the film was shot and edited and cut and broadcast. There, many of their dreams faded away. Many of their dreams turned into dust. Many of their dreams were achieved. Many of them said, oh, that's as far as I'm going to go and I'm on to something else. And it just gives you an amazing perspective on your own life. I would wager anyone that's ever been to a shrink or therapy or anything like that, you just need to watch 63 up from A to Z, from start to finish. Or if you're really up for it, get the collection that has the DVD collection that has every one of the films in their entirety and watch them all. Trust me, you will not get bored. And you will just see your own life and you will reflect on what you have achieved and what you have not achieved and just how lucky we are, no matter where we are. It is a very therapeutic, emotional, amazing journey through time. And you know I'm big on time travel, especially if you have listened into the last couple of episodes, because every every trip is a, a trip in time. When you see a, a movie that was shot 20 years ago, and you remember when you first saw it, or a song that you first hear when someone you fell in love with, and it takes you right back to that jukebox where you heard that song, or the car radio when you heard it together with someone. It's the time travel to the moments that mean the most to us, that change everything. So, fast forwarding to this last year, we're going over to London for my wife's wife's birthday, and because we just love London, and uh, we love to stay at Claridge's, big fans, it's our home away from home. As Spencer Tracy said, when I die, I don't want to go to heaven, I'd rather go to Claridge's. So as I said before, I had tweeted out Tony Walker, and he responded, we had kind of a tweet Twitter pen pal thing going back and forth. I watched a film that he acted in. He's, he's pursued a bit of an acting career over the years also, and he's quite good, very, very good, in fact. Had a bit of a bucket list thing going on there that um, oh, a film that I've been trying to get up forever, a car racing film. I would have loved to have had him in the film in a role, um, an eternal project that will probably never see the light of day. But I also just wanted to meet him. And we had our little Twitter pen pal thing going on and said, I would just love to meet you for a cup of coffee and have you meet my wife and see you in, in real life. I've been following you for, you know, 53 years of my my own life. And I consider you a friend, even though I've never met you. And the warm exchange that we had, and, and Twitter is about as sterile as environment as you can get. Even Facebook has more, more work. But it just came through his messages ago. This guy is just like I picture him. He is a fighter. He's a lover. He embraces life. He doesn't let anything get in his way. And his generosity is what he shows first um, before anything else. He leads with his generosity, lead with love, lead with generosity. And anyway, make a long story short, not only have the honor of meeting him in London and gave me an, uh, a couple totally unexpected presents and the photo that you'll see on the um, show notes. Um, his wife drove us in her cab, she's a taxi driver also, to a country home outside of London where 
we stayed for a number of days um, before coming back to London and spent a couple hours in her taxi just talking about everything like that. It was just so surreal. And just to have a bit of time with Tony when we got back into London, um, all I can say is everybody says don't meet your heroes. You know, I, I, I've seen a lot of the bands from the 60s and 70s that have come through on these reunion tours now. And, uh, you know, like Yes and The Who and um, you name it. And yeah, musically they're proficient, but they're fucking old. And they don't look like they did when they were in their teens and 20s and even 30s. And so you got to close your eyes and think, Jesus, you know, I just paid $400 for this seat to see these old guys. And you close your eyes and the music's so great, but it's not the same. It's a reunion tour. They're not at their height. It's the same. People go, I only came for the music. Well, good on you, mate. But with Tony, growing, having grown up along with him and, and aging along with him, stuff like that, it was wondrous to meet him because he was everything I expected and more. And um, even the tweet says, you know, we met as strangers and let, left as friends. Uh, I consider him a close friend, and I hardly even know him, but yet I know everything about his life. He knows very little about mine. So I am imploring you to get 63 up, whether you stream it, whether you uh, get the DVD collection, whatever. As I said, it was released in cinemas in the U.S. a number of months ago, I think in um, January and February before all the uh, drama started. And you won't do much better. And watch it with your kids. And watch it with your grandkids. It is a lesson in life. And it is a lesson in, yes, you're part of how you grew up. You're part of your genealogy of your parents. And then the age-old conundrum, nature versus nurture. I tend to think that nurture takes over. You can take a poor, disadvantaged child and put them into a brilliant environment, or you can take a child of wealth and put them in a poor environment, and the environment will dictate quite a bit of what goes on. But something innate in all of us, from our parents, from the time we're born, will also drive us to overcome adversity or succumb, to succumb to it. And Tony and Neil are some of the best examples. And in fact, I would just agonize over the years, just before the seven-year mark, on, oh, I hope this guy's all right. Oh, I hope he got through this divorce, or I hope he got through this mental illness, or hope he got through this setback, things like that. And and one of the fellows now that is just, when they were filming, discovered he has throat cancer and isn't sure he's going to be around for the next one. It's just heartbreaking. And if the only thing you take away from it is you have a finite life. You only have so much time on this earth. What can you learn from this? Um, much like the Kim Co interview a couple of weeks ago, if you had a second chance, what would you do just to make the most of everything? As Winston Churchill uh, famously said, or maybe famously didn't say, but it's attributed to him, success is simply going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. And that to me is what, what life's about. In the film industry, it is just train wreck after train wreck after train wreck, and then a success. And that's what keeps you going. 
That is what keeps you going. It doesn't matter with your Steven Spielberg or, or whatever. You've just got to be able to never look down. Never look down. You're like Carl Belinda on the tightrope. That's what's, um, what keeps you from falling. He goes, I never look down. And um, that's why they were the flying Wallendas and generally not the falling Wallendas. But that's another show. Now, I did want to touch on uh, someone had asked me how I got to Australia originally. And it does go back to second grade at Lincoln Elementary School with Bernice Scantleberry. Now, if you were, speaking of 7-Up, if you were born with a name like Bernice Scantleberry, really, you had to be a teacher. What else could you do with a name like that? And uh, in second grade, so I was pretty young, We I do remember we drew a country out of a hat. She had a hat, and this was like we were studying geography, and she had names of countries in there, you know, like um, Austria, Germany, France, things like that. And you put your hand in the hat, and whatever country you drew, you had to go to the library, and we had a big library trip. We had a library at the school. We also had the main library downtown, which was like this big, what I remembered is this big kind of like Ghostbusters public library. It was very, very spooky to go in there and get a book on that country and, and write a little story about it. And I pulled Austria, and Austria sounded cool. And we got down to the library, and, you know, learning the Dewey Decimal System and whatever it was, the book. Anyway... They didn't have the book on Austria. They went, I accidentally went down the wrong aisle. And at the end of the aisle was this giant, giant book with this monster rock on the front, Ayers Rock, Uluru, and it was Australia. And I thought, oh, I mean, even though I was only like seven or eight, I thought, wow, this looked like going to Mars or something like that. So I got this book and got it home. It was as big as me. And I wrote a little story about Australia. And then later on at Herbert Hoover Junior High School in geography, wrote further about Australia. Always had a fascination with Australia. It seemed to me the closest to going to Mars while still staying on Earth. And in Los Angeles, seeing the ads then for Qantas and the koalas and Paul Hogan and put a shrimp on the Barbie and so like that. I had a fascination. And as you know from previous episodes, I hope you've listened from the beginning that in the early 80s when I was as in Los Angeles, and I was struggling a bit that day, a lady who was a psychic and a friend of my oldest friend told me that at one point I would have some success and then that would lead to a trip to Australia and then I would find my permanent home in Australia. And you could say it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I, I think not. It wasn't that many years later that the, the, the phone rang on my wall and I almost didn't answer it. I thought, oh my God, it's, you know, the power bill or the gas bill or something being disconnected. It was a very challenging time uh, in my early career. And, you know, there was no caller ID. You just looked at the phone and go, who's that? And I didn't want to answer the phone because it was only going to be bad news. Something was going to be disconnected or a bill was due or whatever. Um, I was just kind of sitting there reading a paperback I'd bought, you know, two weeks earlier at an airport um, news agent. And Lo and behold, lo and behold, I did answer the phone, and it was my agent, and I thought he was going to tell me he was done with me, but he said, do you want a shot with a team and adapting a novel, uh, a very famous novel with a top producer, and that was the paperback that was sitting on my desk that I had bought happenstance at that news agent 
at the airport a couple weeks before. So the odds of that happening, even buying that paper book, knowing it inside out, that my agent would call me, that I normally wouldn't have answered the phone because I thought it was going to be all bad news and everything. That's that's the way my life has gone and why I always look for opportunities and think that the best is right around the corner. In fact, my wife always says, who is my greatest supporter, uh, often says, I'm not a glass half full person. I'm a glass overflowing kind of person. And uh, that's that's like the greatest compliment I could ever get. I just always think the best is coming. And uh, is that nature or nurture? I don't know. I don't know. Perhaps both. But bringing my head out of the clouds and taking this beautiful serendipitous success story and really crashing to earth like MH17 being shot down. What I have been doing the last week is assisting my lovely wife with the cupboards in our house because of the Wuhan virus. Thanks, China. We've had a little bit of time and my wife has decided to completely redesign and reconfigure every cupboard in the house. And I have assisted, I have assisted, and she's very fastidious, and she loves spreadsheets, so everything is in its little cell. And I did accidentally put a jar in the wrong place the other day, so this this could actually be my last podcast. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But the place looks amazing. Looks amazing. Absolutely looks like a department store showroom the way everything is just in its right little place. So those of you that think I'm just elitist and I sit here in the bunker in Brighton in my beautiful studio with all my toys, nope, I'm a hardworking husband because I'm scared. I'm scared and I have to obey. But I am really elitist. Let's get down to it. And now it's our favorite part of the show. (laughs) What is your podcaster wearing? Well, let me tell you, after cleaning up every one of those cupboards and going, you know, stem the stern in the house, I wasn't much in the mood to do anything. But, true to form, did some exercise, took a shower, trimmed the beard, which is the uh, the Wu Flu beard, and I thought, you know what, walk the walk, talk the talk, get dressed up, do the podcast, and uh, put on one of my favorite Alexander McQueen semi-formal shirts and Lubyam waistcoat which we used to call a vest, but over here we call a waistcoat, and uh, some new Prada pants, amazing zipline pants that I bought just before the virus and everything closed, and the uh, favorite Dolce Gabbana sneakers that you've seen before. So I'll have a photo up in the show notes just so you know that I'm not lying to you. And I feel absolutely a million bucks, absolutely a million bucks, feeling good. You you feel good when you look good. And again, I'm not... um, a clothes whore, but uh, I, it's something that, um, as you know, I quite love. My grandfather on my mom's side was a tailor in New York. He was a master tailor uh, for a label called Hickey Freeman, which was renowned for decades and decades. It doesn't even exist anymore. And uh, he passed on that love of fabric and style and those skills to my mom. And my mom passed that on to me, absolute lo- love of it. And it's something I have in common with my wife, who has an amazing style and an eye for design. And, and so it's kind of a hobby for us and things like that. Now, my mom did have one big fashion fail. Very famous photo in our family of 
when she dressed my brother and I together, which was like very 1950s cute, if you were a twin, but I was five and Andy was 12. So yeah, I look cute. But in that same outfit, Andy at 12, he looked more like he was being kept against his will and had Stockholm Syndrome. But that, that's a whole other story. Anyway, I love my brother. But that photo really says a lot. Um, Mystic Medusa, have you noticed? Has anybody felt it? This moon in Leo, the past 48 hours, which uh, is great for decision-making and strength and no second-guessing. So if you felt more decisive... Now you know why. So stay decisive and move forward with your dreams and goals. Uh, but don't be so decisive as the undersharfuhrer here in Victoria, um, Premier Daniel Andrews, who still won't let us play golf or tennis down here, who is kind of like, he does some good things. He's not all bad. He's not a complete loser like, you know, Governor Cuomo in New York, who so adept at steering the state into bankruptcy or nigh bankruptcy for years and years and years and never says anything that's positive, knows nothing, tells people if, oh, if you want to get a job, you know, get an essential job. Yeah, I'll get an essential job. I, I don't work in a bar anymore since it's closed. So I'll go study for four years to, you know, be a lawyer or eight years, you know, to be a doctor. Then I can get an essential, maybe even the three years without income to be a nurse or something like that. I'm a moron. Um, and then he, of course, like all the failed states, the really failed states like, like New York, they, they just want the federal bailout. They just want the federal bailout. So for those of you that are in the U.S., and of course, for those of you in the U.K. and here in Australia and other places, there are 50 states. There's a lot of states that are doing okay. There's a lot of states that are doing well. And there's a lot of states that are doing quite poorly. And when you get really poor, loser, bad spending, idiot states that are blowing all the money, and they want the federal government to bail them out, that means that all the taxpayers in the successful states, not only are paying tax in their own successful state, unless they live in a tax-free state, but they're then going to have to pay more tax to the federal government to bail out the loser state. So you're really being taxed tax twice. And it's, it's completely wrong. There should be no federal bailout for states that, that need help in the U.S. Sorry, run your own show. You can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. It's going to rain. It's going to rain, heavy rain, on some of those people in a big wake-up call. And I'm not saying that the, the Republicans have all the answers. The, the Republicans are still printing money like a, you know, a rabid dog, and inflation's going to get out of hand soon after this all ends, so I'm, I'm not happy about that. But did have to bring that up in our little political rant. But speaking of rain, it is bucketing down here in Melbourne, Australia, where it's about 13 degrees centigrade, and that's about 55 Fahrenheit. So um, winter is upon us. Winter is upon us. Now, a couple things I did want to run past you. Uh, it's big news in the entertainment industry that AMC theaters and Regal theaters and several others as they reopen in the next few days and weeks and months aren't going to play, aren't going to run any Universal Studios films because they've really got the shits with Universal who had promised them Trolls World Tour. Yeah, I know, Trolls World fucking Tour. But every kid on the planet wanted to see that. But when this COVID thing happened, when the Wu flu dropped in, 
thanks China, Universal took it straight to premium and streaming. So all the theaters that have been banking on big, big bucks, major bucks from children, lost it all. So now the theaters are reopening and they're telling Universal, um, yeah, get stuffed. Get stuffed, mate, because uh, we don't want to play your films now because you didn't help us out with the theatrical experience. So it's a big, big war with the streamers in Hollywood. You'd think it's symbiotic because Hollywood really needs the streamers for the aftermarket now. This isn't video cassette and DVD. This is the whole main back end and a huge source of income. But theaters are still the first port of call for top movies. And it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out in the next couple of weeks. The, uh, the movie people just aren't very um, self-actualized, really, if you're a bit knowledgeable about the uh, Maslow hierarchy of needs. The, the theaters are very, very basic. They're, they're on the bottom of the pyramid. You know, if some of you have studied that in, in college or high school, the, the pyramid of Maslow, where you've got your physiological needs on the bottom, your very basic things. Everyone needs food, water, warmth, and rest. And then up the pyramid, you know, your safety needs of security and safety. And then about halfway up, a little bit more self-actualized belonging and needs, you know, intimate relationships and friends. I would like to think that everyone listening to this that I've known for years and years has all that happening. They've got a roof over their heads. They've got some security and safety. It doesn't matter whether you rent or where you own or have a mortgage or whatever. And you've got intimate relationships and friends and things like that. And hopefully the next step up, which is esteem needs, which is a certain amount of prestige and feeling of accomplishment. You've done something with your life. I would be really sad if someone that I've known a long, long time doesn't feel that they've had a sense of accomplishment, whether as a father or a mother or a carer or a doctor or a nurse or a taxi driver or a bus driver or a builder's laborer or a garbage man or a secretary, anything that you've done that you've had accomplishment because everything, everything has its niche in life. And, and you know my, my big sign-off with the, with the show uh, always echoes that. But above that, then you've got, of course, self-actualization, which is really achieving one's full potential, including creative activities, where actually you're, you're able to help others. You're able to give others lessons and things or assist them financially or assist them emotionally and things like that. The, the studios in Hollywood, they never get up there. They're on the bottom of the list. They're just looking to grab everything that they can and, you know, nothing for anybody else. There are some fantastic, wonderful, generous people in Hollywood, but Hollywood as a whole is a gimme, 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 and, and don't give very much. That, that is really what personifies the industry, which is what is a sad part about it because I get so much joy out of creating and so much joy out of filmmaking, um, even though most of that is, is behind me right now as I'm pretty much retired. So um, I hate seeing that selfishness. Selfishness is, you know, it's even past greed. Greed, some people can be really greedy and then they can be generous once they think they've, you know, had enough and they're going to give something away and be less greedy that week. But um, selfishness is 
is bad. But to that end, we'll find out how that all plays out, because every answer is already out there. The cure for Wuhan flu is out there. Everyone just has to be like Leonardo da Vinci. Leonardo da Vinci is still one of my favorite people ever. He sits at my dinner party table, and I hope some of you from that episode are are at least giving that a try as we get towards the 21-day mark next week. But Leonardo da Vinci, you know, invented like a million things because he was like that super radio. He's that kind of radio that could tune in on any frequency. When when you're in your house and you flip on the radio or um, streaming or iPod or Apple, whatever, and you hear either my voice, my podcast, or some music in the room, my voice, my podcast, and music is always already in your room or in your car or in your, your, your gym, wherever you are. All you're doing with your device, your smartphone, whether or your radio, is tuning to that frequency. And all Da Vinci did was he thought so much, he would just tune into frequencies and get ideas, ideas that are already out there in the universe. The cure for COVID is out there in the universe. Nobody's just really tuned into it yet. And that's what amazing musicians and amazing filmmakers and amazing painters and amazing people full stop do, as they just are able to stop and tune into that frequency, which is right in front of you right now. Every idea that will ever be, that has ever been, everything is just right there right now. And some people can just reach out and grab it and act on it. And that's another big thing, acting on it. Why I always like to leave a note book or my phone by the shower. So if I get a great idea in the shower, just grab the phone and uh, yell into it, or make a voice recording or a note. Because if you don't act on it, it's a wasted idea. It's like when you go in the supermarket and you see something, you go, oh, geez, I thought of that a few years ago. Well, maybe you did. Maybe you reached out and grabbed it, but you didn't take it to the next step. Anyway, speaking of the next step, I did say I'd keep this short and sweet. I do want to thank a couple of folks out there. Matthew Scheutz, who uh, is one of my old friends from Sioux City that uh, always has coffee and Galinsky. We've got uh, Carol who walks with me. We've got Matthew that has coffee with me and uh, Robin Mayen, who's always said good things about the podcast. So I appreciate it, you guys. And uh, Van Davis in London, outside of London in Mayfair, who um, has a cluster of people sitting around drinking and I'm sure doing the rest listening to it like families around the wireless. So uh, just a bit of advice. Don't make, get me confused with that Robert Galinsky in New York City, the reality coach. That's a different Robert Galinsky. I am Bobby Galinsky. Uh, yeah, he's got the same surname. He's Jewish from New York, like my family originally was before Iowa. But just don't listen to him. Actually, go ahead, listen to him. Doesn't hurt me. Doesn't take away from me. Just, just know that there can only be one Bobby Galinsky to rule them all. There can only be one Highlander. So on that note... Make sure your glass is half full, not half empty. Try and have your glass overflowing all the time. Look on the bright side. There's always greater light on the other side of the darkness. You may have just lost all of your superannuation, pension, life savings, job, business, everything. But man, gas and petrol are cheap. You can save five cents at the pump. How good is that? There's always a different way to reframe your life. And it's groovy and nice to be important, but it's far, far more important to make sure that you're nice.
Thank you so much. See you next week.